Ted Peters observed that when you take the word live and spell it backwards, it comes out evil. You can hear it, see it? Live, spelled backwards, is evil. And it's true, isn't it? That when we get life backwards, things don't work out very well. When we get love backwards, things go upside down. If you were here last week, you know as a congregation, we started a six-week series on the little homily, sermon, whatever it is, called First John. Seems to be kind of a circular letter intended for the churches of Asia Minor, written by the apostle John. And it basically gives us three tests on whether or not we are following Jesus. The test of belief, do you believe the right things? There's right things to believe, wrong things to avoid. In fact, a portion of our text today from chapter 2, we won't even have time for. It kind of deals with that. Maybe in a Bible school class or a home group, you unpacked verses 18 to 27 of the second chapter of 1 John, where he talks about many antichrists going out into the world that did not believe that Jesus came in the flesh. And in fact, uh, we can recognize them because Christians have an anointing from God. We have the Holy Spirit, so we can discern the difference between truth and error. Do you believe the right things? This book also asks the question, do you live the right way? It's the question of righteousness. Are we conforming our lives to God's standard? But this time, as we're working through the book of 1 John, We are dealing not with the test of belief and not with the test of righteousness, but the test of love. Love. Do you act benevolently in goodwill towards someone else? And last week from the first chapter, and we stole a couple verses from chapter 2, we said, this is love. This is love. Jesus came. This is love. God is light. This is love. We're off the hook. It's the gospel message. This is love. But like the word live turned around evil, today we want to flip that around. And we want to say, this isn't love. So that we can avoid the wrong path, let's talk from chapter 2, verse 3, down to verse 17 and suggest some things that it's not. I don't know about you, but I sort of like at times what I call the power of negation. That, for instance, if you're trying to define a word, to gain clarity and focus on that word, or it could be a concept, you tell what it's not. It sort of sweeps the floor, you know? It sort of gets rid of all the chaff, so you can say, oh, okay, then it must mean this. Let me give you an example. If I was to say the phrase, every Christian is a charismatic, would you like that phrase or not? Some of you might feel warm to it. Some of you might not. I happen to believe it's a biblical statement. I believe that the Bible teaches that every Christian who's received the charis, the grace of God, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, charismata, to that individual so that those gifts can be used to edify the church. So I think it's a good statement. Every Christian is a charismatic. But we'd probably, given the fact of where we live today, have to make some qualifications, wouldn't we? We'd have to say, well, 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 but, but, but by that, I don't mean that that necessarily means that every Christian has to speak in tongues, for instance. Or I don't mean by that, that that refers to a certain type of leader. Oh, he's a very charismatic leader. I know what we mean when we say that, but we may not mean that by that statement, you see. 
or a certain kind of worship style. No, we're not talking about a worship style. We're certainly not talking about being part of a Christian denomination under the umbrella of Christendom. So I think it's a good statement. Every Christian is a charismatic. And yet, it's a statement that we'd probably say, well, it's not this. It's not this. It's not this. So since we are looking at the book of 1 John with the lens of love, last week, this is love. This week, we'll turn it around. This isn't love. Now, one of the members of our church here that many of you would know is a fellow by the name of Bud Clapp. I've known Bud for several years, and Bud has been a preacher and an evangelist and a Bible college professor and a Bible college administrator, and in more recent years, a hospice chaplain. But some years ago, Bud was preaching at the Jefferson Street Christian Church in Lincoln, Illinois. It happened to be the time when we were living in the Springfield, Illinois area, and once in a while, the Springfield area ministers would get together with the Lincoln area ministers, and we'd have a joint meeting. And sometimes we would share sermon series. That's what preachers do when they, they don't know what else to do. So we, what are you talking about these days? So what are you talking about? So we'd share. So, and Bud said, and this was kind of interesting because I knew from some of my professors at the seminary that Jefferson Street Christian Church in Lincoln always had a big blowout when it came to February. February, Valentine's, the month of love. Let's talk about family themes. Husbands love your wives. Wives submit to children. You know, to children. Yeah, we often have to do it, don't we? Wives submit to your husbands. Children obey your parents. A big family series to emphasize love. And so Bud said and shared in the meeting, I remember this very well. I have his permission to tell this. That he said, I'm going to take this month and preach about what love is not. Things we're not supposed to love. You might think, wait a minute, we're Christians. We love all the time, everybody. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, We are not to love indiscriminately. We are to love unconditionally, like God. But that doesn't mean we love indiscriminately. In Philippians 1.9, Paul prays for the church at Philippi and says, I pray that your love might abound more and more in all knowledge and discernment. We're to be smart lovers, not stupid lovers. See? And James 4.4 4 says, anybody who makes himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Greek word for friend there, philia, for love. So today, we're going to look at what love isn't. We're going to turn it around from last week. And if you have your Bibles or your devices, or to be on the screen as well, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll start the reading in verse 3. Now here's the deal. I want to read the text from top to bottom. I want to read the text from front to back but I'm going to preach it the other way. I want to preach it from back to front. I want to preach it from bottom to top because today we're just reversing everything, you see. So, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, this is what John writes. And by this we know, now there's a lot of knowing in the book of 1 John, that we have come to know God if we keep His commandments. Okay then. In fact, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Boy, John doesn't put any water into wine, does he? He just says it straight. You're a liar. If you say you keep the commandments of God, then you don't. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. One of my teachers said that the Greek people didn't even have a word for flawless, like we think of when we say perfection. But here it means probably maturity or completion. When you keep the word of God, you you become a complete lover as God wants you to love. Then this verse, by this we may know that we are in him, whoever says he abides in him, I hope that's everybody here today, 
I hope before you're done with this service, you will desire to abide in Him. Then if that's true, we ought to walk in the same way that He walked. Now that is a high water mark, and I'm going to work my way backwards to that. Walk as Jesus walked. Now John's not mad. Notice the next word in verse 7. Beloved, he's not angry. That's a term of endearment. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you've had from the beginning. Well, we ought to be familiar then, shouldn't we? The old commandment is the word that you have heard. It evidently was in the gospel. It was in, in the message of God way back. At that time, it's a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away. Boy, the 530 news doesn't seem to indicate that, does it? Sometimes we wonder, but this is true biblical eschatology in the sense that God's glorious future has already invaded our present. And there's a sense in which he says, the true light is already shining. It's true, isn't it? Jesus shines through his people. Verse 9, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. Well, yeah, duh. Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And then several times he says, I'm writing this, I'm writing this, I'm writing this. I told you last week, he uses that phrase ten times in five chapters. He's always telling us why he's writing. And here's why he's writing. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Can I get an amen on that? I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Notice it says, who is from the beginning, not who was. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. That sounds like victory to me. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong and the Word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, I want to really draw a bead on the next verse. This is kind of the key to knowing what isn't love. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. In fact, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world. And then he gives us these three, well, what are these things? Categories? I don't know. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, no matter what it looks like to us at times, the world is passing away along with its desires. And then it holds out this prospect for us. But whoever does the will of God, isn't this great? Abides forever. Well, I'd like to take my preacher's knife today and I'd like to slice between verse 11 and verse 12. So I'd like to talk about verses, you know, 12 through 17 first. Then I'll work my way back a little later to verses 3 through 11. Since we're talking about what love isn't, let me start here. Verses, especially 15 to 17, but from verse 12 on. Here it is. Love is not your cravings. Love is not your cravings. Now, God has given you cravings. We have cravings for friendship. We have cravings for food. We have cravings for relationships. We have cravings for knowledge. And those are all good and sanctified, but the devil can sure get them out of whack. So, yes, is love some emotion? Does love have within it some feelings, some cravings, some passions? Well, yes, it does. I mean, First Peter says that we are to love one another fervently from the heart. Sounds to me like that's got a little oom-pah-pah in it, okay? 
And I read this book of 1 John, that I, can, or I mean Song of Songs, that I can't even get through without turning red. So what's that all about? Anyway, is there passion in love? Sure. But you wouldn't want to reduce love to just your cravings, would you? I mean, we're not mere animals in heat. You don't want to just live by your glands. No, he says in verse 15 of chapter 2, love not the world, neither the things in the world. Now, we might want to pause just a moment here and ask, well, what does John mean by cosmos or cosmos? Well, what's he talking about? Well, maybe we can get a little help from one of the ancient philosophers of ancient Greece. He was the third of the famous ones. First there's Socrates, then Plato, then Aristotle. And Aristotle did a number of things. He, he wrote a book called The Rhetoric, which still impacts speech classes today. He was the personal tutor of Alexander the Great, who conquered the world. He uh, invented what we call in Western logic the syllogism, two premises and a conclusion. If A is true and B is true, then C has to be true. But Aristotle loved to do this. He loved to define the range of a word or concept by its extreme nuances. Now, let me, let me illustrate what I'm talking about. Jesus said, um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Aristotle, not, he's 300 years before Jesus, so he's not responding to Jesus, but he'd say, well, what does meekness mean? Probably a lot of us, when we hear meekness, we think weakness. But he said, no, 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 meekness is this quality in the middle between total passivity over here, so laid back, you're laid out, okay, versus anger over here. So meekness, said Aristotle, is the middle ground. It has all the volatility of anger, but all the restraint of passivity. Are you following the idea? So let's just take John's word, world. What do you think he means by world? I thought God loved the world. I thought we're under the dominion mandate, that we're to be ecologists and we're to take care of the world, be stewards of the earth that God has given us. We should be concerned about Hurricane Barry. We should be concerned about things that have, yes, but in what sense are we to not love the world? Well, let's just look at the nuances of the word. Sometimes the word world in the Bible means planet. The planet, this, this physical ball in the Milky Way galaxy that we are spinning on right now, planet. First Timothy 6.16 says, we brought nothing into the world and we're going to take nothing out of the world. On the other hand, John 3.16, the golden verse of the Bible says, for God so loved the world. And there he probably means the people of the world. Now, God loves all of creation, but, 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 but. I saw a bumper sticker once said, forget the whale, save the people. Uh, God loves whales. God made the whales. But if I read Romans 8 right, you are the key to the rest of creation. People are. That was his prime creation. So the world, the people of the world. On the other hand, in 1 John 2, where we are today, I think he means the pagan influences. The world turned upside down. Live that's opposite evil. It, it's, it's, it's all of those cravings. He says, don't love the world or the things in the world. Here's why. If you do that, the love of the Father is 10 million light years from you. And then John drills down a little deeper, and I don't know what all he's got in mind. Maybe as a Westerner, I'm thinking too much in departments and categories and, and boxes. But I just wonder if you could put every sin you've ever committed into one of those three camps. The desires of the flesh. Boy, a lot of sins going there. The desires of the eyes and the pride of life. Now, first, just deal with desire. 
It's actually a good word, but it got dirty through the years. It's the Greek word epithumia. And Jesus said in Luke 22, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. So it's a good thing. Our desires can be sanctified. But when they go backwards and when they go belly up, they create all kinds of havoc. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Do you think John is thinking about a garden? Do you think John is thinking about a wilderness? I don't know. I'm kind of wondering to myself. I read that this woman saw that forbidden fruit and she saw it was pleasing to her eyes. And then she took it to satisfy her flesh. And the real taking of it decided to say this, I don't trust the goodness of God anymore. I want to be God, the pride of life. Maybe John's thinking about a garden. Maybe he's thinking about a wilderness. Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4. The enemy comes to the Son of God and said, you're the Son of God. Turn these stones into bread. You're the Son of God. Jump down from the pinnacle of the temple, for the angels will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Even the devil knows the Bible. And then says, just look, just, just bow down to me and all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. But where Eve failed in the garden, Jesus will succeed in the wilderness. He quotes Deuteronomy 6. He quotes Deuteronomy 8. The point is simply, maybe these three things kind of characterize all of it. Yeah, we're not to just, love is not your cravings. It's not just your desires that have gone amok. And in fact, if we work our way back through this passage, you'll see why. Why should we not be just given to our cravings? Because verses 12 to 14 said, why would you want to do that? You've already overcome the evil one. You've already had your sins forgiven. You already know God. Why would you want to go backwards? So he deals with this little direct address, little children, fathers, young men. Some of you ladies might have felt left out. Actually, that's not true. Because little children is often a designation in the New Testament for disciples. And the fathers sometimes just means veterans in the faith. And young men might be just a reference in that world to newcomers in the faith. He talks about brothers. I know this much, that brethren, though it sounds very masculine, when it's in the plural, it includes both genders. So really he's just saying, why would you listen and just love your cravings? After all, look at what you've been forgiven. You know him from the beginning. You've overcome the evil one. You know the father. You know you that you're strong and God's word abides in you. So we don't want to just, love is not your cravings. In fact, somebody said it this way. Since I became a Christian, I do anything I want to. Sounds a little loosey-goosey, doesn't it? They said the only difference is Jesus changed all my want-tos. I just, God reshapes my cravings. He reshapes me by, do you see what you have in verses 12 to 14? Is the, the fruit or the results of the Christ event, of him coming into your life. And, and so that's kind of how this works. It was Dallas Willard who said it this way. If you are satisfied with your walk with Christ, and he doesn't mean plateaued like you're not growing anymore. But if you're satisfied in your walk with Christ, temptation when it presents itself won't even be interesting. You just go over to the button, hit delete, because you think, well, why would I want that? Not, not because, because my cravings have been reshaped by, by God. 
Um, why would we want to swim with the muck and mire of this world when God can make us soar like eagles? Uh, the church staff and the church elders have been reading a book recently. We just got done with it. Building a multi-ethnic church. And on page 94, it makes this statement. The art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. The art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. You think, before, that would have brought me satisfaction. No, not really, not so much. Our founding dean, Brother Seth Wilson, used to define repentance this way. It's not just the changing of beliefs, though that's part of it. It's not just the changing of desires, though that's part of it. It's the changing of affections. It's not just the changing of beliefs, it's the changing of where your affections are. And I will always be grateful for way back in the day when Jay St. Clair was our youth minister and he taught our boys, your God is whatever you can't get enough of. You can't get enough money, then money's your God. You can't get enough power, power's your God. You can't get enough sex, sex your God. You can't get enough food, food's your God. Your God is whatever you can't get enough of. Your cravings, your cravings. And John says, no, 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 this is not love. Love is not your cravings. But let's keep moving backwards. Neither, verses 3 to 11, is love your claims. Neither is love your claims. Did you notice that in verses 3 through 11, three times it says, whoever says, whoever says, whoever says. Listen, folks, you can claim all kinds of stuff, but unless you follow through with some actions. Now, at our house, in our 46-year-old marriage, we try to say every day, I love you. Miss Carla's better about it than I am. Sometimes I'm so task-focused, I forget. And I'll get to the end of the day, and she will say, you didn't say it today. Oh, I fail at this so much. I love her promptings and her reminders. And I say, I love you. But I can say that till the cows come home. If I don't lay a juicy one on her from time to time, what's that? That's more information than you needed, isn't it? Listen, it's not just your claims. No, you have to follow through with this, evidently. And if you go all the way back to verse 3 and verse 4, you begin to see, what are the claims? It's not just claims, it's, it's, it's knowing His commandments and, and obeying His commandments and keeping the Word. John says it pretty straight here. Uh, and then he talks about this old, new commandment. The old, new commandment. And saying that you love God, but you don't love your brother, you hate your brother, that will be, uh, you know, furthered a little bit in chapter 4. But let me just kind of sidebar with old new commandment for a minute. This commandment about love was pretty old. It goes back to Deuteronomy 6. It goes back to Leviticus 19. It's pretty old. Love God, love your neighbor. But boy, did it get some steroids when Jesus showed up. He says in his mandate in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Here it comes, here it comes. Wait for it. Even as I have loved you. And by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, here's what I'm saying. Showing Christ's love moves our claims to authentic reality. That's the difference. I read about a lady this week, some of the preaching resources that come across my screen, down in East Texas who tried to put this to 
to action, I guess you'd say. She was at an intersection and her car, elderly woman, it was stalled. It would not fire. It would not go. She pumped the gas. She cranked the ignition several times. Nothing. The guy behind her in a pickup truck just kept honking his horn. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Just honk, honk, honk. She thought, I can't do anything about this, and I probably should say something, but she's a Christian. She wants to act the right way, so she gets out of her car. She walks back to the pickup. She motions for the guy to roll down his window, and she says to him, look, she said, I'll make you a deal. If you start my car for me, I'll sit in your car and honk your horn for you. Well, she found a way to be proactive. She found a loving response that dealt with the truth. And maybe that's a little bit what this is. Frederick Beekner was a preacher in a church, and he said this, that love among equals is human. Love to the less fortunate is beautiful. Love to the more fortunate is rare. Love to your enemies is God. But I need to remind you of something very important in this passage. We're not talking about loving God in this chapter. That waits to chapter 4. We're not talking about, um, you know, loving neighbor. We're not talking about loving your family. He specifically mentions the word brother. Hate your brother. I can tell you this from running this through the concordance. Every time the apostle John uses the word adophos, brother, he means one of two things. Either he's talking about your blood brother, like his brother James, or it's a term of Christian community. In other words, this passage says, do you love the church? Do you love the church? That's the application for today. You can't just say, oh yeah, I go to College Heights, where it's a great place. We, well, I don't, forget what the claim's here for just a minute. Do you love the brethren? Do you love the people of this church. Seth Wilson of Lincoln Christian University was a man named Charles Mills. And with his deep, rich voice, he would often say, I love the church. And his favorite hymn was, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. Do you love the church? Or do you live out that poem, you know, that says, oh, to live with saints above, that'll be glory. But to live down here with saints below, that's another story. Is that how you live? This is a call to love the church. Way back in the day when we left college from our student days, we accepted a ministry in central Illinois. We were there three months, and I found out it was an honest mistake. I found out honestly that there was a family feud in our church. I did not know this. I'd heard stories about elders who wouldn't speak to one another, but they prayed for the Lord's table. It troubled me, but I, I, not in that church, I just never. And we had a revival set of services going on, and I did what I was, thought I was supposed to do, so I got this one family, because they were part of the revival team, to go to the house of another family along with the whole revival squad. And I got a call from that elder whose house was going to host this, and he said, That other guy's deacon's wife is not welcome in my home. I was 23 years old, 
And I hung up the phone and I said to Miss Carla, well, the honeymoon is over. Now the work begins. I was so green and immature. I didn't know what to do, but I thought I got an elder and a deacon whose families can't get together. So I called those guys to my office. I'm 23. And I said, we can't have this. I don't know any history about this, but this has got to stop. Well, in my naivete, I, I thought it was patched. They said good things to each other. They forgave each other. They prayed together. They embraced. I thought, okay. And we had a pretty good seven years there where that thing stayed at bay, but it stayed at bay. And when we left to come here to teach, it kind of flared up once again. Hmm. But the good news is that through the years as the four individuals, husband, wife, husband, wife, as they begin to pass on into glory, the kids begin to think this has got to change. And when the final wife of the elder was the final of the four to die, she passed away, the kids got together. And they said, this is ridiculous. This fight was between our parents. It's not between us. This hatchet has to be buried. And you know what they did? The family whose mother, the final of the four to pass away, they requested that one of the daughters in the other family sing at that lady's funeral. Do you love the church? Can I show you a picture? This is the most famous church building in Israel. It's the oldest church building in Israel. It's at the end of the Via Dolorosa. Of course, it's built over the site, the supposed site of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Sepulcher means tomb. So this is the place where Jesus may have carried that cross up that hill. Of course, it doesn't look like that today because the church sort of, you know, covers up the place. But that's Mike, our guide, leading us into the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Do you understand that there are six churches that meet in there? Six church groups use that building. The Roman Catholic Church, the Greek Orthodox Church, the uh, Coptic Church, the Syrian Church, the Ethiopian Church. Six different churches use this building. <laughs> and they can't get along. You ready for this? So a Muslim keeps the key. That is terrible. If I can make my own little judgment about it. No. Love is not your cravings. Love is not your claims. So how do we get this right? You move it all the way back to verse 6. And verse 6 says, whoever abides in him ought to walk in the same way that Jesus walked. That's what I call the duh command. Duh. Live like Jesus. What's wrong with you? Walk like Jesus. So here's what I came to say today. The duh command is to walk as Jesus walked so that you won't love the wrong thing. Walk as Jesus walks so you don't love the wrong things. In our sermon meetings, I was grateful that the guys put me on a book I had not read. It's a book by James K.A. Smith entitled, You Are What You Love. If I was lifting out a few bullets as a way to kind of wrap this thing up, I would mention these five bullets from that book. 
You are what you love. First, they say, you are defined by what you love. That's true, isn't it? Show me what you love, and I'll show you what your God is. You're defined by... Secondly, the heart is the epicenter of the person. No surprise about that. That's why we talk so much in Scripture and in the church about your heart. Thirdly, don't underestimate the power of habits. Sowing healthy habits reaps right destinies. Fourthly, we are creatures of habit. We are, aren't we? Which brings me to this last item, and that is, they say, we are liturgical animals. Don't raise your hand, but I bet some of you brush your teeth the same way every day. I bet some of you have a routine that you get up in the morning and you head off to work and you always stop at Starbucks because that's what you do. We are liturgical animals. We fall into patterns. Now, this is not a call for self-help. This is not a call for pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. This is not a call to just say, oh, I wish you'd try harder. The Christian always answers it this way. God being my helper, I will commit to this. Uh, Saturday, we leave out of Kansas City to go to Seattle there's a family camp up at the foothills of Mount Rainier that we're involved in in Washington State. And then the week after that, we've kind of guarded this week as kind of our vacation week this year. And we're renting a car from SeaTac there, and we'll drive up to Victoria, British Columbia, and see some stuff up there. Now, I learned as a result of this about going, uh, learning about a harbor master. A harbor master. This is a guy that, that joins the ships coming into the harbor. We didn't have much of this in Iowa. So uh, where I grew up. Anyway, the the harbor master joins the ship and the harbor master knows the harbor. He knows how long it is. He knows how deep it is. He knows the currents. He knows the tides. And the harbor master says to the captain of the ship, steer this way, steer this way. And you know what happens? When the harbor master comes aboard, you reach your destination safely. You think this will preach? Somebody from the outside who came into your soul and says, if you just follow what I tell you, you'll reach the destination safely. So could you do me a favor as we close? We're going to have about 60 seconds after I pray for you to wrestle with this. And we'll sing a little bit and close the service out. But on the back side of your worship folder, would everybody take their worship folder just now? Take your worship folder, please. And on the back side in the right-hand corner is a box labeled habits. Habits. So to make this message on this isn't love stick, I'd like you to jot down a couple things in that box. And here's the first thing I want you to write down. Pray, pray that God will reshape your craving. See, your cravings are there by God's design. Those are good things. The problem is the devil wants to short-circuit that and have you satisfy them in ungodly ways. So pray that God will reshape your cravings. I um, was a covenant group leader for a bunch of guys once. These were all guys that were pastors of megachurch. They were sons of megachurch pastors, and they all worked for their dad. So they were going to probably be the heir apparent when dad dies or resigns. And one of them was Jeremy Jernigan. Cal Jernigan is his dad down at Central Church in Mesa, Arizona. And Jeremy's written two books. One was called Crowdsourcing the Sermon, where he says other people need to have input into this. And the other one is Redeeming Pleasure. He sent me a copy. He said, would you proof this for me? 
I love the title, Redeeming Pleasure. What God wants to do is take all your good, God-given, created pleasures and redeem them so that they're put in the right way. So pray that God will reshape your cravings. Second, put out a healthy habit that will help you heal. Put out a healthy habit that will help you heal. I think you know what some of those might be. I mean, John Baker and Rick Warren wrote this book, Life's Healing Choices, for all of us with hurts and habits and hang-ups. And they started the ministry Celebrate Recovery. It was just a way to, what are some habits that, this isn't self-help. This is, this is asking the Holy Spirit to work. And then finally this, and this might be the most important thing for you to do in the next 60 seconds. Write down a new habit. Write down a new habit that you need right now to love the right things. How could you, what habit would you need to inculcate into your life that would help you love the right things? Our Father in heaven, thank you for calling us higher. We actually rejoice that the bar is high in discipleship. We're not proud of when we've caved into our cravings. I really believe, Lord, that people here in this audience really want to do what you want them to do. Sometimes it's just been kind of hard when we get twisted and warped. Would you help us do that today to follow you, to love you, and love others in your name, in Jesus' name.